Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29. There Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Then he kind of explains here where this godly fear comes from. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's bow our heads together once again. Father, we do praise you, Lord, for your hand in our lives, certainly in your word, Father, but even in the day-to-day, moment-by-moment protection and guidance and direction, Lord, and leading all of these things that you demonstrate that you are involved in our lives. Thank you, Father, that things that should be big to us naturally and in our flesh and in our minds, Lord, you give us peace, you give us calm when perhaps we might feel anxious or distraught. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that we can find these supernatural provisions in our supernatural God. We pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts even now, Lord, by your Spirit. Strengthen us to recognize who we are and what we have available to us by your Word and by our relationship with you through Jesus. Bless us tonight, Father, I pray, in this time of fellowship. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Saints, I'm going to be honest with you. I was working on this lesson. And I don't know, I had spent a pretty solid time in my outline getting it squared away. And I was like, man, this is really, this is coming pretty good. You know, not not too bad. I was really pleased with how it seemed to flow. And then I got this horrifying feeling that maybe I'd given a lesson similar to this recently. And and so the problem, the problem with technology is that we have capability of recording just about everything and anything these days. Whereas it used to be we used to present on paper and maybe you lose your notes. I don't have the notes to, to lessons from back in the early 2000s and that sort of thing. So I went looking for it and sure enough, <laughs> sure enough, probably, I don't know, a couple of years ago it seems, uh, I gave a lesson very similar to this. Some other variations and different themes and different little points here and there, but I did bring it to the Lord and say, Lord, do you want me to consider this same thing again? And he made it very plain that I was to do so. So uh, if you, well, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes I I will ask uh, Allie, have I preached on this recently? She's like, honey, I don't know what you said last week. (laughs) I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm not sure what you said, what you preached about on Friday. And so I'm like, well, that's good. Not really, but I mean, you know what I'm saying. It's, it's, you know, the word is new and the word is fresh, and there are times when perhaps we need to hear the same thing, even sometimes day after day. And I can raise my hand and say that fits for me sometimes. So if you find this familiar, uh, I've made an entirely different uh, lesson, but there are some similar points in here. So uh, my apologies in a certain way. But that being said, you can see by the motif of our background, of our slides there, that there's some fire involved here. And you can uh, understand very quickly, based on verse 29, that we're considering fire tonight. Our God is a consuming fire. Uh, something we kind of say oftentimes. Uh, for some reason, I'm not sure why, but my father-in-law, I feel like he says this quite frequently and, and has cited this passage to me in our discussions over the years, that our God is a consuming fire. And it, it means something to me because I've always been a fan, I guess you could say, of the element of fire. I'm not alone in that. I think it's a remarkable thing. It's something that is almost 
I'm not going to say miraculous, but it's, it has a certain mystical quality to it. There's a science behind it. I'm not going to get into the fire tetrahedron and all the fire science that's involved. But, man, it, it's pretty cool stuff when you get right down to it. And the early people who, who had fire and, and recognized its benefits even to a greater level than we really do, um, it must have been rather remarkable to them. It's useful uh, to begin with. It's heat and light and all of those things. You cook over these things, you understand. The, the word is used there in Exodus 12, 8 about the, well, when they were to eat the, the Passover lamb. This is the kind of thing that we're looking at. It's simply convenient, I guess you could say. Uh, they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire. That's what fire is. When it, when it talks about God being a consuming fire, it's talking about the kind of thing the flame the light the heat and all of those things i think most would agree with me or at least some would agree with me that's pretty to look at it's kind of mesmerizing we used to do hay rides rather frequently and people would just sit and kind of gaze into the fire for a while that's just what we did oftentimes it smells nice whether it's a candle or not the smoke that comes off of it there's something about it the snapping and the crackling and all of those things it just has a relaxing effect it just, it just contributes to the ambiance if it's just sitting there and it's burning. Fire is cool. Fire is cool, figuratively speaking. I mean, cool. It's a, that's an oxymoron. It's actually hot. But it's a cool thing until it isn't, right? Until it gets out of hand. Um, it kind of, well, there's, there's a movie I used to watch back in the day when I would geek out and want to be a firefighter and that sort of thing. I don't recommend that movie, but there was a character in there that said, the fire, it's an animal. It's an animal. And sometimes the animal gets loose and that sort of thing. It got really silly, but uh, to a certain measure, it's a hungry animal. When it gets loose and you don't have it controlled, you don't have it caged, so to speak, it eats and eats and eats as long as it has food. Uh, it doesn't take long to look at Great Chicago Fire of 1871. You know, all it took was a cow to go kunk and kick that lamp over, right? Light a fire and then it burns up three square miles or something. That didn't really happen, just so you know. It wasn't Miss O'Leary's cow. That's uh, urban legend, if you will. But the fire was real and it got out of hand. The animal got loose and it ate and it ate and it ate until those old school 19th century firefighters got it put out and it just ran out of fuel uh, to a certain extent. Um, Fire will just keep on going. It's dangerous. It will burn you. It will hurt you. It will eat up stuff. And so it's not entirely surprising why God would make a comparison of himself to this thing and call himself a consuming fire as he did in our opening passage there. Our God simply is a consuming fire, something that eats, something that destroys, something that consumes something. There's a fearsome quality involved there when you get right down to it. Again, if I had a little lighter and I just lit it here, it wouldn't scare anybody necessarily because even if I were to drop it, it would go out. I could harm myself to an extent if I held it too close, burn myself to a measure if I was willing to hold it there long enough. I could light my sweater on fire or something along those lines, but typically not something to be worried about but once it gets big and it starts consuming man it's something dangerous and it's something fearsome so god used that example used that illustration for himself and he did so literally let's turn to exodus chapter 24 and verse 16 and see just how dangerous he appeared when he 
appeared as a consuming fire, you might say. Exodus 24 and verse 16 says that now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. And it was intimidating looking. And it was intimidating to Israel. They looked and they, well, a number of times the Lord presented himself so. They didn't want to approach. At one point they told Moses, you go up, you go up for us. And they sent him in. It was intimidating and the Lord intended it to be. That's why he used that imagery. If you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4, you see Moses again identifying that illustration, identifying the truth that God is a consuming fire. Take heed to yourselves, he says in Deuteronomy 4.23, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, one who will demonstrate righteous judgment, righteous correction, righteous impact upon your life. If you determine that you're going to hang on to these things that are worthless, these things that are valueless and unprofitable to you spiritually, fire can be intimidating and the Lord uses it so. You can look at some of these Ah, some of these drone videos that come out of Iceland when I think there might be an active volcano right now that's kind of rumbling around a bit. But, man, it's impressive. Will you consider what Sinai looked like when the cloud of God came down and the fire was present? I kind of make that imagery similar or, or make a similar comparison there. If I think about Iceland and the, I mean, you know, the, vol- the volcano, the, the lava's coming up out of the volcano, splashing up and just tossing around all glowing orange and and the like. Maybe not a lot of cloud, maybe not a lot of smoke to be seen. But man, it's impressive, particularly in the dark. And I don't want to be very close, rumbling and all of those sorts of things. They were to understand clearly when the cloud came down and the fire consumed at the top of that mountain. Uh, The Lord is a consuming fire, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So he was trying to impress upon them. Get smart. Recognize who he is. And since you're not in a place, perhaps, that you love him and want to pursue him and seek him enough that you would obey him, at least do it for to start. Do it because you're scared to death of him. You know, that's how it is. I made that, well, that illustration a number of times. My dad, when I was young, and I, I didn't know him because I was an infant and then a toddler and all of those things. Back when we could spank our kids and that sort of thing. Well, you didn't do something because you were afraid of him first, Right. And then you get to a certain age where you trust well, that that kid's going to get old enough that they love that one, that authority figure enough, and recognize that he loves him in return, and that's why they obey. But in the meantime, in the first portion of life, man, you're scared of dad, of that anger that he might have, and the wrath that might come as a result of it. So, well, God is a consuming fire, and he wanted them to see that. Now, we understand with this consuming fire that fire is naturally speaking people use this fire to destroy things they destroy trash we used to burn our trash when i was a kid we had it in a in a barrel it was my job to take out the stuff and light it on fire Um, they they burn shrubbery they burn you know they go out into the fields and they'll do controlled burns to burn out all the dead 
foliage that's gathered up. People use fire to destroy a lot of things. We understand in the refining process of metals and that sort of thing. They essentially burn off the dross, right? They melt it down, use fire to get rid of that unwanted, undesirable material. God does the same. 2 Peter chapter 3 points that out. God does the same with fire. Uh, He has throughout course of history. If you look in Genesis, you'll see that he used water to destroy the world, or at least the living things on it. Uh, He promised never to do that again in the ages to come. 2 Peter chapter 3 records that. We see that fire plays a role. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, Peter says, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. It doesn't just end with things burning, you understand. It doesn't just end with things. These elements that will be impacted by fire to a certain measure. Uh, we read about it in Revelation 20.10. And I'll tell you what, man, preachers get a lot of mileage out of this passage and passages like it. I don't dwell on it very much. It's not because I don't believe it's so. It's not because I, I need, think we need to be cushioned to certain things. But I do believe that if things don't apply to us entirely, we don't need to spend more time on it than we need to spend on it. But Understand, Revelation 20.10 and one similar to this are true. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are. This is yet to come, yet to take place. This is the end for this one. Uh, And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And if you continue reading, you recognize that those who will have rejected the Lord Jesus will find themselves in the same place. I don't take joy in that. I don't rejoice in the suffering and in the pain, but there is a reality in that torment. And at least to some measure, literal, figurative, whatever that looks like, the Lord knows. Uh, There's fires, at least a picture, if not directly involved there. Whatever it ends up looking like, this lake of fire, the fact remains that fire destroys and God uses it for its destructive powers in a number of different things. Now, that being said... In recent weeks, we've considered a number of different things. I I realized when I had this lesson put on my heart, we've looked at a number of different things that involved, well, different figures in Scripture and their involvement with fire. Uh, Some might not have been focused. I don't think I focused on the fire of things in a, a number of different things. But in passing, as we considered those things, fire was involved. And tonight, we're going to look at those ones. Look at some of these individual elements we've had just in the last several weeks and how they were associated with fire and what it means to us. And the interesting thing that we find in common with all of them is that while God is a consuming fire, none of these things that we considered and we'll consider tonight were consumed by fire. They weren't, they weren't burnt up. They weren't destroyed. They absolutely were not destroyed by this consuming fire, and we need to consider that tonight. At least that's how I felt the Spirit lead me. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 3. The first one's kind of an obvious one, perhaps. Seems like it's gotten a lot of mention here in recent days for some reason from up here. It says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him, him being Moses, in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not 
consumed. So you understand this is dropping us right into the middle of the far side of Midian, that desert where Moses was shepherding sheep, and he saw that, saw that burning bush, as we've considered. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. It was burning, but it did not turn into ash. It was not devoured or eaten, which is what that word consumed means in the Old Testament. And that's impressive, right? That's impressive. You can read there in Exodus 3 about the interaction, the exchange that Moses had with God. and that It wasn't a short conversation. It was a lengthy conversation back and forth between the Lord and Moses. The Lord told him something, he'd come back. The Lord told him something more, he came back again. There was some burning going on. It had plenty of time to fire off. Uh, I keep on bringing anecdotes from from my own history, but I've burned a lot of stuff out at Dad's place. He's got a big, huge, I mean, barn-sized pile of slag right now, of slash, rather, of, of dead trees and the like. When we light that thing off, there's a whole lot of material there. It's going to go pretty quick. It's going to burn. It's going to turn into ash, and, and we'll be done after a couple of hours burning that up. This bush was burning for, well, plenty long enough for it to turn to ash, plenty long enough for it to be destroyed. So it was a pretty cool phenomenon that it didn't, it didn't take place. It stayed there intact. Uh, cool. It was a cool situation. No cooler, I don't believe, than the next items that we'll consider in Ezekiel chapter 1, if you remember a couple of Sundays ago. Turning to Ezekiel chapter 1, we considered those four living ones that were there in Ezekiel chapter 1. We can also see their likeness in Revelation chapter 4 and elsewhere, but we'll look at Ezekiel chapter 1. We'll see some things there with fire and not being burnt up. It says in Ezekiel 1 and verse 4, Then I looked, Ezekiel said, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself. And brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. And also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. And then it goes on to describe the likeness to the calf and the likeness to the eagle and so forth. This would have been something to see on Ezekiel's part, right? Again, a burning bush that didn't burn. Now you're seeing, uh, again, we have to use our imagination with certain things, right? Have to imagine this, this cloud, as it were, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself. Brightness all around, radiating out of its midst. And then from within it, from inside of it, came the likeness of four living creatures, four faced beings. Wings and wheels and so forth. We, we read all about those in Ezekiel 1. They move this way and that. And I think that it would have been altogether something even more startling than that burning bush. Seeing something that you've never seen before. Not understanding exactly what all it means. Four faces, eyes all over, wings all over. I mean, this was something of substance that Ezekiel was seeing. Oh, and on top of that, they're coming out of fire. Fire all around them. Raging fire is how the New King James puts it. That's well, they've added that adjective "raging" in there, but the word that's well, that's supplying that speaks of flaming, active fire. If not raging, still active and moving. It would have been something to see. Um, yeah, and yet they didn't burn. In verse thirteen, we see that it was 
Well, a part of their appearance if it wasn't actually a part of their composition and their makeup. Uh, As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning. This was... This was impressive. That's not the right one. Ezekiel, I don't have 113 for you there, but there it is. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went light, lightning. These ones, these ones that, that were pictures of victorious saints, we understand. They were intermingled with this fire. It was part of their makeup, part of their character, part of who they were, this appearance that we see there. They at least interacted very closely with it, and yet they were clearly uninjured and unharmed by that fire. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The next element that we will speak of here, that we have spoken of in recent days, many times over the course of the last several years, as a matter of fact, this this element is something we won't see on this side of life. This is something we'll see after this natural life of ours. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, those fully victorious believers that these four living ones represent here, they're going to see a great number of these elements that we're going to consider in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As they stand before the judgment seat of Christ, present their works, consider their works before the judgment seat. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we see the righteous works of God's people. And those fully victorious ones will have the vast majority of them being so. For no other foundation can anyone lay, Paul says, than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We understand this. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, this foundation that is Jesus, his word, his established truth, the irrevocable facts that are the word of God that have been laid out for us. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work. Of what sort it is. So again, whatever that's going to look like exactly. On that day that we stand before the Lord Jesus. However it presents itself, figuratively, literally. Again, I can't fully comprehend everything that will happen in heaven. However it presents itself. This is the illustration that the Lord chose to give. Each of these works will be tested by fire. That righteous fire of God's righteous standard. His judging it and His considering those works. And if they've been made of these perpetual things, these indelible things that the Lord has enabled us to prepare our works for as we follow him, as we obey him, as we listen to his leading, those works will come and fire doesn't touch those things. It's, it's impressive when, when, well, when you see a, a structure that has burned and almost all of it has gone and you go r- rummaging through it and you see things that, all oh, these guitars and instruments and the like, expensive things they turn into garbage and rubbish you have a little diamond ring or something like that it'll get tarnished but you put it in the fire and it relatively comes out worth exactly the same that it went in because it's untouchable polish it up it lived it it dealt with it it was it can handle it right so it is so it is in in spiritual in a spiritual context as we're standing there before the lord here are the works that i have and these are the ones that i did in obedience to you and so they're Indelible, untouchable, because Christ was in those. That's why I named this the Christ effect. Because Christ affected those works that I did. And they're untouchable. They're unmarrable, unburnable. When you judge it by the righteous judgment of, of God's holiness, 
they stand up. Wood, hay, and straw, those things that are built on that foundation that are valueless, made out of garbage, essentially. Poof, they're going to be gone because they don't hold up. God's righteous standard, they won't, they'll crumble and they'll burn right up. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. That's what we're looking for. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet so as through fire, there will be those things as we stand before the Lord Jesus that will be engulfed, as it were, with fire. And they won't burn because we will have brought those works before him to consider that we have done in him, through him, by him, strengthened, strengthened in the word that is Jesus. Now, what do all these things have in common? I kind of gave away the punchline. Not the punchline, so to speak, but the theme of things. Each one of these things in their own way. The elements as we stand before the Lord, that burning bush, those four living ones, each one of those reflect Christ himself to some measure. We understand this. When things seem as though they should be destroyed, but they are not, Well, the only thing indelible, the only thing perfect that holds up to God's righteousness, that that fire that he is, represents, is Christ himself. Christ is seen in that burning bush. Christ is seen in those four living ones. Christ is seen in those works that we bring before him. Each one of these things reflect him, and so they hold up to that fire. Jesus bore the sins of all. We understand this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 reminds us that He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. To a certain measure, in God's perfect and righteous way, and in his supernatural manner, he exchanged this. This is a remarkable, a remarkable passage. He made Jesus essentially sin for us, made us righteousness. Uh, That's something that I can't fully explain, but I do believe it. I believe it, and Jesus himself bore that sin, bore all of that weight uh, and bore that righteous judgment as a result of it. So he felt the fires. Now, I'm not going to get foolish and silly about things. There are different suppositions and different speculations and different ones say that Jesus went to hell. I've read those very words a number of different times and that he went down and wrestled the devil. I mean, there's all kinds of foolishness that's out there. But you understand that Jesus tasted death for us. Jesus tasted and felt the righteous judgment of God, his Father, that is reserved for those ones who are sinful, who are wicked, who have rejected him. He tasted that death for us. He tasted that fire, you might say, as he bore those sins for us. He bore that figurative fire of righteous judgment to a certain measure. And you recognize he was not consumed because three days later, man, he was up and out. He wasn't consumed. He wasn't destroyed. He didn't become ash, if you will. We see the very thing presented in Ezekiel chapter 1. If you flip back there, in the same chapter where those four living ones are presented, we also see our Savior there. Our Savior before he walks this earth. Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 26. Above the firmament over their heads, Ezekiel's vision goes on here, was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire stone. In the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Now, who do you suppose that was? Well, it describes him further in verse 27. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw, as it were, the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. 
And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around. Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, it goes on, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. That was a vision there now. That was something to be seen. And when I read this, and when I read about this one, and how it describes this one, with the appearance of a man high above in this throne, fire all around from the waist and upward, and then from the waist downward, um, the appearance of fire with brightness all around. I'm reminded of Revelation chapter 1. Perhaps you are too. We see, again, who I believe is the same one represented in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 12. When John was on Patmos, we understand, and he heard a voice, he heard someone calling out to him. I'm going to turn over there in case I want to expand a couple of things here. Revelation chapter 1. And it says there, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, in verse 4. And he presents to them what Jesus said to him. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then when he, ultimately he turns to look back, it says in verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about, with, about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. The saints, I don't want to get... Again, foolish about things and look for imagery where imagery isn't. But you understand, by the time John saw this revelation, by the time he was presented this piece of revelation for himself to record and share with God's people, by this time, Jesus was long dead and risen. Jesus' work of redemption on the earth was done. We see, I think that we see that represented here where his feet are now like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. A bit different than we see him in Ezekiel when there's fire raging all around him. Fire, I believe, that righteous fire of judgment, righteous fire of God's holiness and righteousness. Purifying, I would say. Purifying fire all around him, but it didn't consume him. It just burnished his legs and his feet. Those things that are, you can see as pictures of works and pictures of activity in the earth. And he had that, those years of ministry in the earth. They were perfect works, perfect acts. His ministry was absolutely without flaw, without issue, without any kind of... There, weren't, there was no sin in him. He dealt with everything that we encountered and then bore the sins of all. And he tasted death once again in the fires of, of God's righteousness and that judgment. And he wasn't made ash. He was completely intact, I guess you could say. But not much difference between Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 1. Except that the fire is present. And now you see the finished work. The same one. Unaffected except for he's just brightness. Brightness and, and purity and everything. The same one without the fire necessarily seeing it. Just as if refined in a furnace. Uh, there was nothing of him to be consumed. I'll just say it that way. The fire was present there in Ezekiel chapter 1. But nothing to be consumed on the one who was perfect. But it was present and he was within it. And so it was. These other things present themselves in a similar way. These other things we've considered tonight. The burning bush. Reflecting Christ's word. 
The Lord Jesus is in it. I mean, it spoke to Moses. Jesus is in it. It's perfect under the testing of any righteous standard, under the testing of any holy judgment. His word is perfect and without flaw. Fire's there and it doesn't become ash. The four living ones are reflective of those ones who live by his word. Those ones who reflect Jesus, have him within and follow after him in their walk of faith, reflecting the Lord. Fire among those four living ones, coming from without, from within the fire, and yet not consumed. And then the gold and silver and stones reflecting those works of righteousness. That will define the majority of those works of those, well, of those victorious ones. Showing God's eternal and transforming work. Changing them into the image of the Son of God. Daniel chapter 3, verse 24. One last little piece, one last little example that again is quite obvious. Bearing out Jesus not being consumed and those ones who will reflect him literally not consumed in the fire. You're familiar with Daniel chapter 3. Those three friends of Daniel's, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, I believe is their Hebrew name. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. When those ones were in that fiery furnace, heated seven times hotter than it was because he was wrathful himself. He rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, after those ones had been cast in, did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now in the New King James Version, it has it capitalized there. I don't believe at this point in Nebuchadnezzar's life he recognized that that was the Son of God. Capitalized, if you want to. I see it absolutely as being the Son of God. If you look into the original language, it does seem more likely, as I point out whenever I bring this up, that he was saying looks like the Son of a God or a, 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 well, a derivative. It's, it's, one of those, it's one of those things that's, well, part of their religion, part of their beliefs, part of their idolatry. I don't think that he looked and saw and said, well, that's Jesus in there, the Son of God. No, he, he saw something that was remarkable. But I don't know why I say that necessarily other than, well, just to give you a bit of information, I do believe it was Jesus. I do believe it was the Lord Jesus himself. In verse 27 of Daniel chapter 3, And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose body the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Why? Because of the Jesus effect. When Jesus is part of you, when Jesus is in fellowship with you, when Jesus is within you, when you have that new creation life and you walk after that new creation life, when you receive his spirit and you walk in the spirit and you've heard his word and you've built on that foundation with gold and silver and precious stones for your works, when Jesus is your center and your focus, the Jesus effect takes place. And that holy righteousness that comes down, that fire as it were that would test us and hold a standard before us, well, very little of us will be confu- not confused. Very little of us will be consumed. Those things that are moved and affected by Christ aren't harmed by the fire of his righteousness, by the fire of his holiness. They aren't harmed by those things. It's a part of their makeup. That's the Jesus effect on the things that he touches and that become 
Well, that he becomes a part of their makeup, a part of their composition. We are consumed with his fire, certainly. We need not fear the destructive power of the Lord, though he is a consuming fire, because we're consumed with his fire. It does surround us at times, but we're not consumed by his fire. He does not make us ash, because we have that new creation life in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. We can make him a part of our every composition, our every makeup, putting off the old man, putting off the flesh, separating as much as we can through the Spirit and His enabling, learning His Word, seeking His Word, building on those foundations and becoming more and more like Him, transformed from glory to glory as we consider Him, more and more like Christ, with less and less of the combustible stuff attached. Saints, that should be our hope. That should be our hope to continue to bear out the Lord Jesus in us as we seek to allow Him to guide us and to lead us and become a part of our entire composition. Not just that little new creation. I want to belittle it. But not just a small sliver of who I am. Me leaning on the flesh. There's, there's, there's just still a piece of gold inside there tucked down in that piece of meat that I am. We don't want to be that. We want to be this much meat. And a great deal. A great deal of the Lord Jesus' image. May we not be consumed maybe understand that we are not consumed by his fire even though we are consumed with his fire because we have the Lord Jesus as our center.